and welcome to Scram, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, I chat to wine expert, author and TV personality, Oz Clark, and founder of Wine Event Scotland and friend of this podcast, Diana Thompson. I'm joined by wine expert Oz Clark and friend of Scran, Diana Thompson from Wine Event Scotland. I feel like I can say that, Diana. We've talked quite a lot. Um, how are you both? Pretty well. I've been uh, tasting wine solidly for about nearly three weeks now. So uh, the, the idea of actually thinking about wine even is a bit disturbing to me. But I, I'm sure you're completely different. You're saying, isn't it wonderful? I've got a glass of wine. Wait, Oh, I can see one right behind you there waiting for me as soon as I've finished. Well, perhaps I will. Yeah, well, I can't. Well, hopefully you're okay to talk about wine. If not, be sitting. If I can remember wine. how to pronounce the word, yes. <laughs> so, Oz, for anyone that doesn't know, um, and I obviously don't want to go into too much detail because we don't want to spoil your book that's just come out. How did you get into wine? Oh God! Uh, well, <laughs> we were having a, a, a picnic uh, out on the River Ouse, just near uh, near Cambridge, when I was three, and my mother uh, got the rug out and put the picnic all over it. My brother was drowning um, in the weir at the time. My father was trying to rescue him. My mother was having hysterics. And I just noticed that there was a bottle of my mother's homemade damson wine sitting over the one side. And I thought, well, nobody else is concentrating on me. Looks pretty attractive. So I drank it. That's how I started drinking (laughs) wine. Actually, my brother did survive. You'll be pleased to know. Um, My father dragged one bedraggled son out of the out of the river, um, and then looked at his other son, pink and comatose, (laughs) then saw the empty damson wine bottle, and he picked me up by the ankles and whacked me uh, in the stomach, and all the damson wine sort of exited whence it had entered my person, um, which uh, probably put me off drinking. I mean, literally till about I was about 18 i wasn't one of these people who uh, wandered off at school and thought how do i get to the pub um i'd had too many um fuzzy memories of being three and drunk but it did actually give me a, a, a long long lasting um pleasure in wines that taste of damsons like um one of the ones that uh, that uh, i know that uh, edinburgh uncorked is going to be having malbec from from Argentina. It's good to know it's not put you off then. <laughs> we, we lived out in the countryside. My parents didn't drink wine. Like they drank two bottles of wine a year. And, you know, my dad was a doctor in the coal mines. Um, um, uh, it was perfectly normal not to drink wine. Um, uh, nowadays, you think, well, in middle class, you'd be drinking wine. But we didn't. Uh, at the end of the 60s, 5% of the British nation drank wine. Now they reckon 85% do. It's a complete and total change. So coming from a non-wine drinking background was perfectly normal. Um, And then I finally got up to university um, and with very little money in my my pocket, but an enormous amount of um, enthusiasm for the the, the gilded youth life of of Evelyn Waugh and and Max Beerbohm and all these people, I wanted to. I wanted to live that life that they lived w- without any money. And I, one of the things I discovered was that there, there was an, a university wine tasting club. And of course, university wine tasting club, um, it was subsidised, and it, the, the, it was two pounds a term, and you got four tastings. That's fifty pence a tasting. I just thought. I shall become soigné and sophisticated and elegant and irresistible to the opposite sex if I'm a wine expert. So that's what I've been... Oh, and then, I remember, then, of course, I saw in the small print at the bottom that you could take a guest. And suddenly, 
50 pence a tasting became 50 pence a date. So that, that, that's really how I got involved in wine tasting, looking for a, a cheap date. Um, and so you've, you've said there that, you know, only 5% of people in the 60s drank wine, whereas now it's 85%. What was the main sort of driver of people getting into wine? Because like, you're right, it does seem strange that people didn't really drink well, wine. That's because wine was filthy. Um, in in the sixties and seventies, I think wine was probably disgusting. That's why I didn't drink it. We didn't we didn't have a popular wine culture in in Britain because there wasn't any decent popular wine. Um, the the kind of scrapings from the bottom of the gut rot barrels of Southern Europe that we used to get um, plied with uh, as 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 um, ordinary wine drinkers. I mean, nobody would drink that stuff by choice. Nobody cared about what it tasted like. At the top end, you know, and they obviously Edinburgh knows this because Edinburgh and Leith have been one of the f- places in the 60s and 70s where you still could get a decent glass of wine. Um, but the top end, there was still some lovely old-fashioned Bordeaux and ports and sherries and champagnes and things which people drank. But that was the tiny top end of society. Ordinary people like myself coming in as students or as young actors or whatever, that kind of thing, the kind of wine that we, A, could afford and B, were offered was muck. And it wasn't until there was one shining uh, exception to that, Rioja, good old Rioja. Um, Rioja actually gave us red wine without tears when the rest of Europe was trying to starve us of ripeness and had been doing so for a thousand years. Rioja didn't. Rioja gave us that vanillary, that soft, that creamy, that coconutty, that gentleness. When most red wine would rip the insides of your tonsils off, Rioja wouldn't. Rioja would soothe your tonsils back into place. But what happened, and this would have been end of the 80s, the new world came along. And the new world had a completely different approach to, to wine to the old world. I mean, the new world approaches the consumer matters. The new world approaches the, the people who are drinking it. Let's try and make them happy. And to the old world, you thought, what? Why would we be trying to make these people happy? And the, the new world approach was, well, why wouldn't you? So you had people like Australia coming over and just giving you what they used to call sunshine in a bottle. And and nowadays people say, oh, sunshine in a bottle. Oh, we're well past that. Well, they may be. A lot of people aren't well past that. The idea of nice, ripe fruit and a white wine that tasted slightly peachy or apricotty or creamy or spicy and a red wine that tasted of, of, of lovely things like black currants and blackberries and ripe plums, those sort of a little bit of chocolate added on the top. Those sort of flavours, that's what Australia said. Yeah, of course we can do that. Why didn't you say so before? And it came, they came first. Um, California came along at about the same time and could have um, done the same job as, as Australia. I think the thing about California was, though, that you know, there are 300 plus million Americans all keen to drink Californian wines. And price and the dollar uh, goes up and down like this in, in international terms. Australia, there aren't 300 million Australians. There aren't enough Australians to drink the kind of wine they were producing. Uh, they were desperate to export their stuff, but they like to drink decent stuff that tastes decent, and they don't put up with rubbish that doesn't taste any good. So they're ending up making too much wine over in Australia. They've got to export the stuff. And it was the first place that they will ever think of exporting is to the old country, which was us. Now, 
it still wouldn't work because there used to be an Australian wine centre in Soho in London. And that was sort of it. Uh, it was the supermarkets who came along and w- had an open mind to saying, OK, we're looking for new stuff. They found Australia. They then found Chile. Uh, they then found New Zealand. They then found South Africa. Suddenly, all of these are, are, are places who had... Either somewhere like New Zealand had no wine reputation at all, or somewhere like Chile had zero wine reputation in terms of export because they drank all the stuff they made anyway themselves. Same with Argentina. New Zealand virtually came and and, and found us out um, with this complete new revelation, this revelatory wine called Sauvignon Blanc that the world had never seen a wine like New Zealand's Sauvignon Blanc before, ever. That fresh, bright, fruity, crisp, gorgeously drinkable style. I, mean, I often think with Sauvignon Blanc, it's a, it's, you, see, you, you walk into a bar and you think, what should I have? A really good gin and tonic, a really nice pale ale, or a Sauvignon Blanc? It does the same job. You don't actually have to know much about Sauvignon Blanc. You just have to know it's always going to taste decent. It's always going to taste good. So, you had Australia with that those lovely round golden Australian Chardonnays. You had Australia. Australia pretty much taught Britain how to drink red wine, and it was literally wines like Penfolds. Penfolds is a big operation, but they made wines. There was a thing called Bin Twenty Eight, a single wine which you could get in every odd bins shop and Majestics and all these places. The the the, the British. <laughs> learned how to love red wine, not through France, not through Italy, not through Spain, but through Bin 28, Australian Shiraz. And Shiraz was ripe and rich in the mouth and juicy and spicy. And it and it warmed you up in these cold, uh, cold Edinburgh sort of old reeky evenings. There you were with a glass or two of Shiraz. You just felt so much better. Where did it come from? Australia. Where did the, the where did, what did it say on the label? Shiraz. Penfolds. Hey, what about all these complicated names? No, 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 no. Just the grape is Shiraz. My name is Penfold. Australia, Chardonnay. The grape is Chardonnay. My name is, I don't know, Lindemann or Smith or it doesn't matter. They they basically said, what's the most important thing about about the flavor of a wine? It's the grape variety. Now, this never happened before. It's Spain and Portugal and, and Italy and, and France. They didn't go around saying, hey, let's try and make it easy for the customer by saying the grape variety is what matters because the grape varieties they're the same as apples if you give so any of us here or any of our friends give them a cox's orange pippin and a and a granny smith and a, and a golden delicious everybody with their eyes shut will be able to tell you the difference and it's the same with the sauvignon is as different from a chardonnay as a as a as a, a granny smith is different from a from a, a cox's I mean, hey if you can tell the difference between a a cup of tea and a haddock, you can probably wine taste. <laughs> Basically, trying to teach wine tasting, uh, we say, look, do it on your own terms. You don't have to go to school to, to learn it. You don't have to buy lots of books to learn it. If If you just like the flavor of things and you just think this is my palate this is my sense of taste this is my sense of smell this is this is my hangover you know it's just me and i'm i'll taste we all have the same glass of wine uh you Roz, me three of your friends three of my friends we have the same glass of wine we'll probably all find slightly different flavors and they're all the right flavors 
because it's our we've got several million um, receptors up in our in our nasal cavity. That's where all these flavors develop. And you might your 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 nasal cavity might be really sensitive to apricots. Mine might be really sensitive to, to bananas. Another of your friends might be re- really sensitive to I don't know tangerines or something. And and th- so they will each pick up those sorts of flavors in their own particular way. And if somebody says it tastes of tangerines and somebody else says it tastes of lime zest, they're both right. There's no right and there's no wrong about it. Now, you can get as geeky as you like and you can learn. If, you, if you're excited about the difference in flavors and textures and smells, if you get excited, then there's lots of ways you can learn more. But you don't have to go any for in a way what's a good what's a good wine tasting note you take a glass of wine and say oh lovely what's next <laughs> that's a perfectly good wine tasting note it means you're happy you smiled you enjoyed what you had uh, you're looking for something else now you could go on about the, the, the tastes of kelp and and seaweed and 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 burnt chocolate and and mangoes and god knows what and it might and if you get a, 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 a buzz out of that, that's great. And you could then say, this is spent six months in, a, in an oak barrel and six months in a concrete tank and three months in an egg and two months in a, you know, in a, in a earthenware jar. Great if that's what turns you on. The, the, the wonderful thing about wine is it's a, it's a fabulous pyramid there, and it goes to a, a thin point at the top. But as it gets to the bottom, it's a very wide pyramid. And anybody who just thinks i feel like a glass of wine has got as as valid a, uh, a, an opinion as someone like myself who spends half their time immersed in it well that's uh, very interesting i was going to say you've talked there about wine tasting and you've um, obviously been educating people on wine for a long time i used to watch you with my mum on food and drink on the bbc so it's, it's really <laughs> nice to be talking to you how have you found that over the years do you find people now as engaged as they always have been um like what how do you find in sort of introducing p- new people to wine i think that's Far more people now have got far more ideas about wine. When we were doing food and drink, we were that we. I forgot to mention my beloved Julie Goulden, who was an absolute superstar, uh, and and very very important in in leading the whole British nation towards drinking wine. But always prepared to take a wine head on, uh, completely regardless of reality. Would then describe it in whatever way she wanted to describe it. And people all around Britain, 10, 12, 13 million people would clock in each week, and they used to go out to the shops and in, they, you know, they couldn't say, oh, I feel like a, a bottle of Westhofner Gerümpel Gewürztraminer, please. They just say, I'll have Jilly's wine all around the, the nation. People would just go along next morning and the wines would sell out by lunchtime. Every, every wine that Jilly and I talked about on BBC Food and Drink would be sold out by lunchtime. And the, and the supermarkets were always begging us to say, please give us six weeks' notice from what you're going to talk about. And we say, we can't, you know. This is virtually as live. We were tasting it probably the day before we actually went out. Uh, uh, no one in the wine world had ever talked to ordinary people before. The wine world had been very cloistered, and, and much of it still is, to be honest. Um, but it was very, very cloistered. Uh, there was no populism of any sort. And what you needed to is try and translate some of the populism of people like Keith Floyd. And and it's not easy because, of course, Keith Floyd goes out cooking 
um, slurping back his wine as he goes, but cooking's fantastic fun to watch. You, everyone's making stuff and cutting stuff and dropping stuff and, and boiling and frying and spicing. It's all, it's, as, as many people have said, you know, cooking became the new rock and roll in probably the 1990s into the noughties. But wine is just a glass of liquid. You've, you've got to make it all up as you go along. And, and when you're cooking, you're tasting fantastic things that actually taste of themselves. A shrimp tastes like a shrimp. A rosemary tastes like rosemary. Wine's got no uh, language of, it, of its own at all. A glass of wine, you have to borrow language all the time to say what it tastes like. I, I can't uh, pick up a glass and say to you, this tastes like Cabernet Sauvignon, because you're going to go, so? What does that mean? I have to say it tastes of, of blackcurrants, or but not just raw blackcurrants. It tastes of blackcurrant jam. Hey, but but not any blackcurrant jam. It tastes of my mum's blackcurrant jam. We used to have women with kids, and how do we have it? We cut a great slice of, of white bread. We slathered it with, with salted butter. We poured on my mum's my blackcurrant jam, preferably the first jar of the first lot that she'd made this year. That's the smell and the taste of blackcurrants that I get. And then the blackberries are different. Again, not a raw blackberry particularly. It's more likely to be cooked blackberries, blackberry, blackberry crumble, uh, blackberry jelly, those sort of things. But you're, I'm, I'm going back into my memory, into my life, drawing out memories and experiences, putting them into this glass, which is just called a glass of dark liquid called Cabernet Sauvignon. glass of dark liquid called Cabernet Sauvignon is not going to make a single person want to drink wine. But also, the flavours weren't there until the New World came in, until Australia came in, until New Zealand came in, until South Africa, Chile, uh, Argentina. They came in with flavours which were based on fruit, based on the grape variety. And again, each grape variety tastes different, so put it on the label. Make it easy. Malbec, you know, we've got to learn that. Ten years ago, nobody knew what Malbec was. Now, nearly everyone who drinks wine knows Malbec is simple. It's that grape that comes from Argentina, and you only need to know half a dozen. Chardonnay, that softer, more golden one. Sauvignon, that sharper, greener one. Um, Pinot Noir, that lighter red one, sort of strawberryish. Shiraz, that round, rich, spicy one. Cabernet, that rather angular one, the one that makes you chew a bit in your mouth. You've, that's, I've, only, I've mentioned five grape varieties, and you've already got as much knowledge as you need to know to have perfectly happy 12 months of, of wine drinking. And then you might think, well, what about countries? Um, Australia is normally that. It's, it's hot in Australia. So hot things give you more tropical flavors. It'll be more peaches and, and, and more apricots and more um, uh, things like kumquats, if anybody knows what a kumquat tastes like. Um, more you know, things like those orange melons rather than white melons. Those sort of flavors you get from Australia. New Zealand, it's colder. It's right, it, you know, it's way down in the southern seas. It's pretty cold in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, so then suddenly you're going into great flavors like green apples and green gauges and kiwi fruit and, and lime zest and, and those sort of things that, that just say, okay, I like that slightly cooler style of wine. I go to New Zealand. I like that slightly warmer style of wine. I go to Australia. Um, Chile is a very interesting place because it's so long that you start in the Atacama Desert at the top and you end up virtually in Patagonia. So basically, Chile 
can offer you every possible type of wine from big and rich and juicy and, and spicy to something really elegant and, and sort of refined and reserved. So that you're, 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 you're sort of looking into the wine thinking, I wonder what's there, I wonder what's there. Now, if you're thinking, I wonder what's there, I wonder what's there, that's not much good for someone who just wants to knock back a, a glass or two of white. That The job for them? New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, no one does it better. But there are grapes like Riesling, which uh, which can grow down in Patagonia, um, in Chile. They also grow in France and, and Germany and places like that. Oh, and Australia, by the way, of course. Australian Riesling, what does it taste like? It tastes about twice as strong as other people's Riesling. Why? Because it's made by Australians in Australia, and Australia does bigger flavours. Um, but 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 it, the something like Riesling is a, a great... The wine geeks are always trying to say, oh, Riesling is the next most famous grape. Everyone's going to love Riesling. Everywhere. It's going to become the new Chardonnay. never does because it's at heart, it's a wine geek's um, sort of style of wine. You have to work a bit at, at most Rieslings to think, what's there, what's there, what's there? That's not what most people want to do. They want, they want what's there to be bang in your face like that. That's what Chardonnay does. That's what Sauvignon does. That's what that's what um, Shiraz does. Merlot does that. Malbec. Uh, Pinot Noir, interestingly enough, doesn't. Pinot Noir demands a bit more thought, a bit more extra, extra consideration. Therefore, Pinot Noir is more. It's a wine geek's grape. Merlot doesn't demand anything like the same intellectual approach. So that's everybody's grape. You've mentioned uh, all the, the, the wine varieties and um, the grape varieties and areas and things. What do you think the future of wine is given global warming? And are you quite surprised that England is now producing wine? I'm delighted England's producing. I'm not surprised at all because I've sort of been in it. I, I've, it's a wonderful wonderful ride english wine and eventually by the way scottish wine you've 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 had one or two attempts at scottish uh, vineyards there's a fellow on fife two there's a fellow on fife somewhere over on the tay another chap on the south african guy on the tay there's an experimental vineyard up in aberdeenshire at the moment it's 0.09 hectares but it's growing all kinds of grape varieties which can grow in places like the Baltic states and in Scandinavia. So they'd probably be okay uh, in Scotland. Because one, one forgets about Scotland is that the east side of Scotland is relatively dry. All you need is a bit more heat. If you look at Perthshire and going going across to, to Fife and then up towards Aberdeenshire, there's lots of good market gardens, herbs. The herb industry is really good there. You produce wonderful herbs on the east side of, of, of Scotland there, just north of, I suppose, north of the Tay. What about Wales? They were saying, oh, Wales has got to be too cold, got to be too wet. Well, of course, most of Wales is too wet, but the reason that the rest of Wales isn't too wet it's because most of Wales is. Most of Wales is great big mountains like that, and it's pouring with rain all the time, which means past those mountains, there are going to be valleys where the sun shines all the time. I was in the Conwy Valley last summer and in the Vale of Denby, which is just further along. Each time I was standing in bright sunshine, tasting, by the way, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir wines, in other words, wines that you think, oh, those are classic French grape varieties. Surely it'll be far too cold in, in Wales to 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 ripen those because they need more sunshine. <laughs> it it's not not in years like twenty twenty, not in years like twenty twenty two. You've got ample sunshine in somewhere like Wales. Not everywhere, in some parts of Wales. Yorkshire has now got 25 different vineyards. Yorkshire has got a vineyard trail. 
vineyard that's that's wine tourism that's the kind of thing they have in champagne or in in burgundy no yorkshire's got a vineyard trail and when it comes to what's happening in the south of england the, the thing about the south of england is we've got basically the same geology as the champagne region which is based on cretaceous chalk all those wonderful white chalk cliffs that's exactly the same soil as they grow the best champagnes on and champagne is a, an area northeast of paris it's only two hours drive from Calais. And so the the, the the White Cliffs of Calais are exactly the same as the Champagne soil, and the White Cliffs of Calais are exactly the same as the White Cliffs of Dover. So it all, all over southern England, you've got the, the same basic um, soil as Champagne. And that runs up to north of the Humber. So if you're in places like just on, just north of Hull, you've got the same soil as Champagne. If you're in Norfolk, you've got the same soil as Champagne. The Champagne is like there. You just go round a bit like that. You've gone to Chablis. Chablis, Chablis is a, is, is a, a cough and a spit away from Champagne. Now, Chablis is it basically um, a, a slightly different soil, limestone rather than chalk, but pretty pretty similar. And that runs all the way up from Dorset, up to the Midlands, up to Middlesbrough. And that, in the next five or ten years, we're going to find that exploited more and more and more, right way up to something like Middlesbrough. And we can keep everything crossed for a Fife wine as well. Fife, uh, Fife, I'm <laughs> sure Fife will work. The dear old uh, Charlie Trotter, I think his name was the chap, you know, he had a go, and it's just a generation too early. Uh, if you can grow and ripen all those soft fruits uh, all the way uh, in places like Perthshire and, and along the Tay, if you can do soft fruits, just a little bit more heat, you'll be able to do grapes because grapes have got much better protection against the diseases of, of dampness than something like a raspberry or a strawberry has. So I'm going to just bring Diana in because since we're talking about Scotland and wine, um, and you are going to be hosting Edinburgh Uncorked. Uh, which is, and Oz, you'll be there, uh, which is next month. Is that right? Do you want to just tell us a bit about it, Diana? And then we can talk to yes, Oz about what he's doing. Thank you. So, Edinburgh Uncorked with Oz Clark is a fantastic wine fair um, that's taking place on Saturday, the 3rd of June. Um, there are two sessions to choose from. You can come from 12 till 3 or 4 till 7. And we've got 35 producers there who are literally showing wines from all over the world. They're each showing at least six wines. So you can do the maths of how many hundreds of wines we're going to have. But there's going to be ones that you will have seen before. So you can revisit those ones you can explore and, and discover for yourself. And uh, it's going to be a, a fantastic day out. And Diana, that's fantastic. That means over 200 wines. I mean, those of you who haven't been to a, to a wine fair before, you really should come along because it's fantastic fun. And where else can you go in and say, I, 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 I've got... 200 wines today, where do I start? All I can say is don't waste time. Get there early, use your three hours, and you'll be absolutely amazed, A, how much fun you have, and B, how much you can learn if you want to. And if you if you just want to have a good time with your friends, well, you can do that too. That's, that's right. It's the assembly room. It's the assembly rooms. God, I, I did a show there once with um, a group called Morris Minor and the Majors. And I, I think Donovan was there as well. God, that'll show you a few years ago. And Diana, did it come from a sort of similar vein of wanting to just um, inform people about wine? Like, what was the sort of thinking behind it all? Yes, absolutely. So I started a Facebook page, which is Enron Corps, and um, and it's obviously it's, it's there today. And the idea was that if people are out, they find a wine that they like, Take a photo of it and pop it on Edinburgh Uncorked and tell people where you can get it. Or if you're in the supermarket, you see a wine you like, it's on suddenly special offer. Um, take a photo, 
tell people about it. And it's the idea, it's great wines at great prices. And that's exactly what we're talking to the producers about, uh, choosing the wines that they're going to show. They've all got to be great wines at great prices. So whatever level, whether it's entry level or whether it's top end, they're showing great value for money and they're great wines. And you can buy them on the day, can't you? Yes, a lot of the uh, a lot of the producers will be selling on the day, or uh, you can place orders, and there'll be special offers galore. As but well. just tell me, when I buy my ticket, um, I then go in. I've got my ticket, and for the next three hours, I I can taste whatever I want. I don't have to pay again. Absolutely no. You come in, and your ticket. The tickets are from twenty five pounds. If there's four of you, it's twenty five pounds each. Um, if you're just on your own, or a couple of you, it's thirty pounds. And you can taste as much as you like yeah. and, and talk as much as you like to the producer there. So do the math. <laughs> do the math. <laughs> to use an Americanism. And we're going to be announcing masterclasses soon as well. So um, there'll be two masterclasses per session to choose from as well. So that'll be... That'll Which uh, that'll be fun. I mean, if you if you feel like, okay, let's take let's do some serious wine tasting. Masterclasses are good fun because you get real experts coming in saying, okay, I've got a bunch of people who actually want to know about the terroir and the, the grape varieties and, and the, 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 the way that the winemakers behave and all this kind of thing. So they're, they're fantastic for those on the next rung up. But uh, those of you who don't want to go to that next rung up, stick around on the floor and taste another 50 wines. Well, it sounds great, especially on a, a weekend in June when hopefully there's nice weather and we can all get a rosy. <laughs> yeah, rosy, it's only two weeks off midsummer night. Oh, don't. So in other words, it, um, once we've finished uh, at Edinburgh on Cork, there'll be another hour or two of sunshine for you to go and get your bottle of rosy and sit out in the in the sunshine and think, mm, I've had a really good time at Edinburgh on Cork. And you've probably made about 10 new friends as well. <laughs> we've also written a blog if people are interested which you can find on the um, on the booking page if you're coming to Edinburgh of things you can do in Edinburgh so it's like that after the show why don't you go to Prince Street Gardens and enjoy a glass of rosé or uh, why don't you go to Harvey Nichols beforehand and have brunch just to set you up and, uh, <laughs> good <laughs> and we also have a wonderful yeah um, the Edinburgh Food Safari and um, Nell Nelson she's going to be doing a tour a food tour the following day as well that would be um, brilliant yeah, sounds good. Um, and finally, if you could only take three drinks onto a desert island, what would they be and why? Um, I think it would be a perfectly brewed, perfectly drawn pint of an old-fashioned 80-bob natural of the kind that Stuarts were, were brewing for a while in Edinburgh. Um, and that long, long ago you used to get from youngers, or even better, you used to get them from oh, uh, Lorimer and Clark. And those there are a few people who will remember Lorimer and Clark it was a wonderful brewery, uh, which I, uh, eventually I think it was somewhere down the, the, just near Haymarket, the brewery. Um, but Lorimer and Clark's Lorimer and Clark's Pale Ale. You have to be 105 years old to know what I'm talking about. It would be a perfectly balanced pint of really properly brewed beer, which which I would take. Diana, what would be your three drinks that you take on a desert island, or a or a drink? I think I think well, I'll take a couple. I think some sparkling wine, and it doesn't need to be champagne. It could be fantastic uh, Cat Classique from South Africa, or just sparkling wine from 
Australia. Uh, and a second one, I think, after us talking about Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, I think yeah. a little bit fresh Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. Would and if you had to say to me, Ros, one wine that I think I would take, it would be a really nice, fresh Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand for my desert island wine. I feel like now we're all going to finish up and have a nice, fresh glass of Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've, I've got one back there. Maybe it's time I tried it. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, thank you very much both. Um, it's been great to chat and find out more about wine and the event. Um, and just quickly for anyone who wants to get tickets, um, what's your website, Diana? It's wineeventscotland.co.uk or on social media at wineeventsscot. Okay, well, um, thank you very much and I hope it goes well and uh, we'll see you there. Fantastic. Thank you. See you then. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to Oz and Diana for being my guests on this episode. Edinburgh and Cork sounds like a fabulous event and I'm sure we're now all craving a chilled glass of Sauvignon Blanc. Thanks to you too for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Ros and Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.